The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within the yard of hell. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians. Now, this is my favorite one right here, the Asians. Okay? Paul had a couple of ninjas in his crew. It's the only way I can see it. The Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. Now on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Man, talk about preaching that kills. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them for a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Azos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met at Azos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. The day after we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. This is the word of God to us this morning. Amen? I agree, Tilly. This is my granddaughter up here. She's going to make lots of noise and try to compete with me all day. Ways to go. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we just ask that you would come and speak to us through the preaching of your word. Ask God that you would come and confront places in our hearts that maybe we've been unwilling to confront for a while. Ask, Father, that you would come and do a work of healing in areas of our hearts that are tender and broken and wounded. Uh, ask, Father, that you would come and give us strength. 
most of all, Father, we ask that you would maybe come and wake us up from the deadly naps that we do tend to take uh, in this life that you've given us. Help our hearts and our minds to come alive and awake to your word and to the gospel, to the power of the cross and the empty tomb and the promise of heaven. Trust that you would do that work by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, everybody said... Amen, amen. Title of this message is The Deadly Naps We Take. I'm sure you can tell why if you were listening to the reading of the text. Uh, the reality, though, I think, is at first glance, when you look at this uh, passage in its entirety, as I think it could be a little bit disorienting when you read it, right? Um, feels uh, a little bit like this. Uh, there's, there's this weird story of this long-winded preacher, Paul, um, literally preaching someone to death. Uh, in the text, but then that story is sandwiched between these two really boring GPS maps. That's the way I see it, right? Uh, if you take a look with me for a few minutes, just kind of work our way back through the passage, look at GPS map number one with me. That's verses one through six. Um, in these verses, Luke describes what I would like to call Paul's kind of jumbled up journey. Um, he goes from Ephesus to Macedonia, to Greece, and then he goes back through Macedonia to Troas. Um, and all this running around in these first six verses uh, seems to be um, brought on or prompted by a, a threat uh, to his life. That threat to his life from the Jews uh, is what caused him to change his travel plans. Um, he, he wants to avoid getting assassinated. I'm sure that if you and I were there, we would want to do the same thing too, right? Avoid assassination at all costs. And I think that's what's taking place in that first portion of the text. Now, sandwiched in that story is a description of this really diverse crew of people, these men that were accompanying him in his mission to encourage churches in those areas. Now, all in all, these first six verses, this first portion of the text, I think as I was studying and reading it, again, first glance, kind of feels like we're reading a map, you know, the Dora the Explorer that had to do with maps, remember that when we had kids that were younger, um, it's all about a map, and it, and it kind of seems, to be honest, a little bit blah, you know, when you read it, it's like, oh, I have no idea why that's in there, what significance it holds for me. Now, the second portion of our text is verses 7 through 12, where Eutychus dies during that long-winded sermon. Um, gets a little bit more exciting here. Uh, Luke describes this all-night worship gathering that takes place in Troas. Paul appears to have preached literally all night long and around midnight or so. You might remember the, the description was that <laughs> they're in a dark upper room that's lit by candlelight basically um if you've ever been in a room that is full of a bunch of people and it's been a, it's been a long hard day at work um and it's just lit by these flickering lights and somebody's just droning on and on and on and they won't shut up and they won't get off the stage y'all have never experienced that here right um that's taking place <laughs> never that is taking place and it just goes on all night long and at some point, Eutychus falls asleep, falls out the window to his death. This prompts the Apostle Paul to run down there really quick, brings him back to life. And then the funny thing is that it says that after Paul grabs a little bit of food, must have been hungry, worked up an appetite, 
He decides to go back to preaching all night long until the very next morning. Um, to me, seems like a rocking good time. No better way, I think, to get people to key in when you're preaching and to stay awake in church than have somebody die and then bring them back to life again. So if anybody wants to... No, let's not do that because I'm not sure. I was talking to a friend of mine this week about this passage as another preacher, and uh, amusingly, he reminded me, this is the way he said it, he said, you know, really... <laughs> Eutychus is just a funny example of this fact. This is the fact. Eutychus, he goes, think about it. Eutychus too, if you fell out of sleep out a window and died. And I was like, Eutychus, Eutychus. Yeah, okay, I get it. Um, Maybe. Maybe it's possible. Um, And there are some who would like to use this text this way. Maybe this portion of the text is, maybe the meaning of it is meant to say, hey, like, Long-winded preachers need to learn to like slow their roll and shorten things up a little bit so people don't die and fall out the window. Um, I want to come back to that in a few minutes. Uh, we'll talk about that some more. Um, but that's the second portion of the text. Third portion of the text, right, it's another GPS map. And I think it's even more boring than the first one. Uh, verses 13 through 16, um, Luke basically just describes Paul's journey towards Jerusalem. And it's, it's, it's this series of traveling by land all by himself. And then his crew is traveling by sea. And then there's a few evenings where they're sailing by sea together from one place to the next. And they're, they're avoiding Asia until he lands in this place called Miletus. And, uh, and honestly, once again, studying it, reading it, kind of almost makes you want to yawn with boredom. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of people who like to sit down and study maps, locations on a map. Um, not very often do I sit down and go, hey, look, that trip we just took, it's really cool to look back and think of all the places we went to. Um, not very often. GPS maps are boring. But with that kind of quick overview, uh, the question becomes, like, what is the point of the text, right? What's, what's the point of this? Like, why is this in there? What's the main thrust? What, what's the main point? What, what, what's the deal with the first GPS map? Uh, what's the significance of the story of Eutychus falling asleep and falling out the window? And what is the, uh, what's the significance of that second GPS map. I want to argue, kind of just throw my cards on the table right up front. I want to argue for this. I think, I think the main thrust or the main point of the passage is centered around Paul's ministry of encouragement as he heads towards Rome. Okay? You might remember back in early chapter 19, Paul basically wakes up one morning and he's like, I must go to Rome. Now, in, in the broad scope of the book of Acts, the book of Acts is broken up into three parts, based on Acts 1.8, where Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And all throughout Acts, the book of Acts is broken down that way. The first chunk of ministry that happens is in Jerusalem, and then the gospel moves into Judea, Samaria, and now it's moving to the ends of the earth, which is symbolized by Rome. Rome at that time... Uh, people would have said that is the ends of the known earth. And so when Paul says, hey, I must go to Rome, I believe God's put this on my heart, Luke is trying to show us as he writes that the gospel is doing exactly what Jesus said it was going to do. So as he heads towards Rome, he has this ministry of encouragement that's taking place in the churches that he's already planted. Uh, You might notice in verses 1 and 2 and 12, that the word encouragement, and in some versions the word comforted, is used. It's the same word in the Greek, and it means it be encouraged 
or to be comforted in the midst of something very discouraging. Okay? One commentator, as I studied this, uh, pointed out that Paul's ministry of encouragement in these verses is primarily a ministry of preaching the Word of God. And I think that's important for us to think about. Paul's ministry of encouragement was primarily a ministry of preaching the Word of God. If you survey the text in its entirety, and you you really sit back and you think about it for a few minutes, I think you can see some instances in this passage where God's people needed to be encouraged, where they were facing some very heavy discouragement. Think about how discouraging it would be to have someone put out a hit on your life. Somebody literally puts a green light on you and says, assassinate that dude or that girl whenever you see them. To know that that's what's chasing you, that could be very discouraging. Agreed? Especially if you think about the fact that the Jews at this time and place, they should have been Paul's friends. We know that it was because of the Jews that Jesus was crucified, so we get that in the story. But we think at some point after the resurrection of Jesus that the Jews would have been like, you know what, we got this wrong. He is the Messiah. We're about, I don't want to be saved, I want to be Christians, right? But they didn't. They continued to oppose the gospel, and they put a hit out on Paul's life. That would be very, very discouraging to me. I think that it would also be deeply discouraging to have someone die suddenly during a sermon, much as we might joke about it, right? the text works. If somebody just killed over dead in the midst of this Sunday gathering, it, it, the day'd be over, wouldn't it? You know, you'd call the, the hospital or the ambulance. You'd be comforting a family. Um, death is not fun at any point in time. Death is discouraging. I think it would also um, be deeply discouraging when you think about this to have your travel plans constantly interrupted, right? Paul's plans of travel towards Rome were being constantly interrupted because he literally had a hit squad chasing him all over the known country. That would be discouraging. So I want you to think with me just for a minute before we dive in a little bit more to the text. Think with me for a few minutes about the areas of your life where you have felt deeply discouraged. Where have you faced deep discouragement lately? If you were to go in line with some of the things that we see in the text, where have you been discouraged because someone you trusted turned against you lately? Rejected you? Betrayed you? Where have you been discouraged because maybe of the sudden death of a loved one or even maybe the threat of death in your own life or in a friend's life or in a relative's life? Think about how discouraging it is um, to have a dream and to never have that dream fulfilled or to live for a very long time without that dream being fulfilled. I'm sure we've all experienced that, right? You have to keep making sudden changes to your plans because you plan in your mind for dreams to come true at some point and you engineer your life in that direction. It doesn't matter whether the dream is to get a newer, better running vehicle or to find a spouse or have a child. Lots of dreams that we have that are good and wholesome that oftentimes go completely unfulfilled, and that can be very, very discouraging. 
Discouragement's not hard to find, is it? There's more than enough discouragement to go around, I think. I used to meet with a, uh, a coach. Coached me in my pastoral ministry. Met with him for it was probably upwards of five, six years on a monthly basis. And, and it was the same question every time I would get on the phone with him was, how have you been encouraging yourself lately? And I would just be like, that is one of the dumbest questions to ever ask somebody. What do you even mean? How do I encourage myself? How are you being encouraged lately? What are you looking to for encouragement? Those are questions he's actually asking. It's actually a very good question. And the question is, I think, in all of that, is where can you and I find true encouragement? Right? Especially as we try to weather the storms of this life. Because this life that we're living here on earth, this broken place, there's no shortage of storms that we get to face and walk through. No shortage. And so where do you and I look for true, lasting, sustainable encouragement? And I don't know about you, but I've found a ton of encouragement in this life that only lasts momentarily. And, and I think my heart, as the longer I've followed Jesus, my heart longs for encouragement that will last. For encouragement that will stick and stay and not go away. You think about the kind of encouragement that I would call earthly encouragement. The earthly or worldly encouragement doesn't last. There's tons of mechanisms that we are pointed to in this life for encouragement that at some point you and I have to admit and know they don't last. All of the escape mechanisms that we can run to in this life, addictions of all kinds, places where we just can check out and escape, those things, they don't last because the discouragement is still there on the other side. <coughs> it's only momentary. If what those things offer are even, can even be called encouragement in the first place. Like, think about this. All the self-help books, as good as they are, all the pithy self-encouragement statements, all the self-worth psychobabble, all of those things don't offer the kind of sustainable encouragement that our hearts thirst for as we navigate the storms of this life. Wouldn't you agree? So the question is, where can you find sustainable, lasting encouragement that stands the test of time against all of the storms that this life has to throw at you? And I think there's a simple answer in the text in front of us. And that simple answer is this. True, lasting, sustainable encouragement is found simply in the preaching of the Word of God. Where it's found. Now, some people, again, I'm going to come back to this, may jokingly want to make this text all about curbing long-winded preachers, and I think they do that to their own demise. Number one, it's not faithful to the story of the text in the first place. I think this text is literally showing us that what we need to do is make more room for more preaching of God's Word in our lives if we're ever going to be truly encouraged. Think about the bookends, okay? 
Think about the bookends. you got this sermon right in the middle. Think about the bookends of the sermon with me for a minute, right? As I alluded to, the center of the text, I think, is Paul's all-night preaching lab, right? And that all-night preaching lab is couched in the ministry of encouragement. Again, three times, Luke mentions how Paul encouraged his listeners in Ephesus, verse 1. Encouraged them in Macedonia, verse 2. And then encouraged them in Troas, in verse 12. Now, now think about this. Paul, no doubt, probably preached many sermons in his travels in our text. But Luke chose to highlight this one. You have to ask the question when you're trying to do good biblical interpretation. The question is, why? Why did Paul choose this story, the one we have here, where this dude named Eutychus falls asleep, falls out the window, it was untimely death somewhere around midnight? You also have to remember this, too. Don't miss this. Paul doesn't hang up his preaching hat because something tragic happened. In my years of pastoral ministry and preaching, I can't tell you how many times, I've lost count how many times I've wanted to hang it up because of a simple email or a simple text message from somebody who was unhappy or just simply disagreed. Because emails and text messages, that's a lot easier to fire those things off than to actually have the conversation face-to-face, right? I can't tell you just for me personally. And those are pretty minor things. Nobody's put a hit out on my life, well, that I know of. Okay. <laughs> There's possibilities. I don't think so. Nobody's ever put a green light on my life that I know of. I've never been dragged outside of town and beaten nearly half to death. I've never faced the things the disciples or preachers in the New Testament have faced or the prophets in the Old Testament faced because of their wholehearted devotion to preaching the Word of God. <coughs> and yet, the small things that I've experienced in ministry have oftentimes left me in tears, wanting to tap out. And yet, Paul doesn't hang up his preaching hat because something tragic happened. He raises Eutychus from the dead. He grabs himself a little bit of food. I don't know, maybe a couple burritos or something. And then he jumps right back into it and preaches until the break of dawn. But even at the same time, we'd be really foolish to miss the context of that sermon. That all-night sermon happens in the confines of two bookends. And those bookends, the GPS maps we talked about, that tells us a lot about what Luke wants us to see. In his writing. I think what Luke wants us to see is this. Namely that that Paul's lengthy sermon is couched in, surrounded by what? The threat of death and interrupted dreams or unfulfilled dreams. That's where the sermon finds itself is right in that context. Death is coming. Your dreams are not being fulfilled. Your days are numbered. And you may never get what you want. The question is, is what bookends in your life do you need to fill up with good preaching? What are the bookends in your life you need to fill up with good preaching? Ever feared for your life? Ever feared for the life of a, a close friend or a relative? I mean, 
If you follow me on Facebook, then you know, or if you know me for a long time, you know, like 10 years ago, we are two years into planting this church. My best friend at the time decides to fly off his rocker. Um, my mom dies of cancer on the 7th of February. And on the 15th of February, that would be this next Thursday, I preach my own mother's funeral because my family is not a Christian family and they would have no other preacher there. And I saw it as an opportunity to share the gospel with a family who doesn't know Jesus. So that finds me here as I think about the threat of death and what it's like to walk through that pain, right? That's a bookend. It be very discouraging when you face death. Maybe you have experienced a lifelong dream, right? Maybe even a dream that you believe is from God, a godly dream, not a bad dream, right? And you haven't seen it get fulfilled yet. Dreams of marriage or dreams of having a baby or dreams of overcoming some besetting sin in your life that you can't seem to find full victory over. Dream about that. And yet for some reason, not seeing the fulfillment of that dream completely yet. It's discouraging. Now, into those bookends, insert an all-night preaching lab right into the middle of it. That's what Luke does. Speaking of the threat of death, right? you actually see somebody does die. <laughs> Again, back to that. Somebody does die in the midst of the preaching, falls out the window, and dies. And then he gets raised back to life by the words of the Apostle Paul. Now, could there be any correlation here as Luke intentionally puts this in there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Could there be any correlation here as to the centrality of preaching in bringing sinners back from their self-made, sin-sick graves of death to brand new life? Could there be any correlation to that? Could there be any correlation to the fact that preaching is the central way in which God chooses to bring dead sinners to new life in Jesus. I, I don't want to press the meat of the passage too far, but I think we'd probably seriously do the text a real injustice if we glossed over the fact that that is exactly what God does. It is and always has been the prophetic preaching of the gospel, the word of God that brings the dead to life. Romans 1.16 is probably all the proof text you need. Think with me too. Think with me too about the deadly naps that you and I take. Uh, regarding you. Eutychus's uh, deadly nap. There's one commentator who kind of has a ton-in-cheek tone as he's writing his commentary on this passage. He says that uh, some people, when it comes to these deadly naps, he says some people uh, fall asleep in church because they were never awake in the first place. They're unbelievers. 
Sometimes people fall asleep in church because they are believers who are living in a compromising, backslidden state in regards to sin, playing around with sin. Their hearts have fallen asleep. They've, they've become deadened, so to speak, muffled to the voice of God and are uninterested because they're more interested in sin. A third category this commentator talks about is people who are very religious, but they are far too familiar with the status quo of what religiosity looks like and feels like. They're not fully awake or alive to the transforming presence of God in preaching either. So that commentator kind of builds those three categories of what it looks like to maybe take those kinds of deadly naps in the church, so to speak. Right? Unbelievers, backslidden believers, status quo religious folks. These people... These kinds of people, he would say, they don't have any desire to put in the hard work of sitting under the preaching of the word of God. And the result is they, they live in a perpetual discouragement. They live in absolute immaturity. They're too busy taking deadly naps instead of committing to the regular hard rhythms of being encouraged by sound biblical preaching that actually is intended to put sin to death and Intended to breathe new life into dead and or barely beating hearts as they are led to a bloody cross, an empty tomb, and the promise of heaven. My prayer as I think about that, my prayer and my hope is that that description doesn't fit any of us in this room. And that if it does, God would use this to transform and change your heart. You might think with me too, shift gears, think with me about the influence of the world on preaching. And, you know, I don't know if we think about that very often, but, you know, think about the influence of the world we live in on the value of preaching. Especially as it pertains to discouragement and encouragement. The world we live in would never prescribe good, biblical, gospel-centered sermons as the antidote or discouragement. The world would rather promote things like this. Self-help, self-promotion, self-gratification, self-expression. These are things that are all centered around self, which the scriptures are very clear that we are to make war against self because self is full of sin. The world would, would rather promote those things Instead of promoting sermons that center on dying to oneself, as Jesus would say, as we take up our crosses alongside a crucified, risen, and returning Savior. See, here's the reality. The reality is that the world, I believe, has influenced many of the pulpits in our Western church and has done it with a TED Talk kind of a focus, right? You got to be expedient. You got to be quick. You got to be sensitive to people's already overburdened schedules, as though that is the preacher's burden to carry. One commentator helpfully says this. I think this ties it up in a nice bow. He says, It is only in our highly time conscious, sound bite world that the Holy Spirit is restricted to 25 or 30 minutes a week for doing the work of producing real transformation. What a shame, wouldn't you say? 
I am so excited for the Super Bowl tonight. I cannot wait to see the Chiefs smoke the 49ers. I will happily spend three or four hours being entertained. You know where I'm going, right? Would I happily spend three or four hours? Take me out of this pulpit and put somebody else in it. You put somebody else in it that I don't even like listening to very much. And see, would I sit for three or four hours just because the word of God is being expounded by a not-so-great communicator? Because, look, I'm not that great compared to the Apostle Paul. I'm pretty sure the Apostle Paul was a phenomenal preacher. Still had somebody fall asleep on him. I'm not sure if I would sit for three or four hours under the preaching of the Word of God. Would I? Would you? Once again, it seems absolutely shocking to me that Paul literally preaches all night long. Dude takes the deadly nap. Paul raises him back to life again. And that instead of Paul calling it quits, I mean, I would have eaten probably if I was in Paul's shoes and then taken a nap. I love my Sunday afternoon He doesn't do that. He goes back to preaching until daybreak. That's at least six hours. Five if it took him an hour to raise Eutychus back from the dead. Now my question is, why does this even shock me to read this? Why is it even shocking to me to to even think about this? Why do we get so uncomfortable or annoyed with the idea that a sermon might last longer than the slot of time we have allowed for it? Would, would any of our westernized disciples even stick around long enough to ever experience that deadly nap that took place or even experience that dead man walking again or even experience the subsequent hours of preaching that followed? It's a rhetorical question. We know the answer, don't we? The answer is no. By and large, okay, there's a few of us that are like Bible nerds in the room for us. I suspect most of the Western church would have bailed after 60 minutes. That's probably being generous. There's churches that supported us in the early years of of planting when we didn't have any money because we didn't have anybody that gave. Christy and I were the only ones giving during those years. Um, And those churches would ask me, hey, can you come and fill the pulpit or come preach? Come tell us how your mission work is going there. Yeah, how long are you going to give me to preach? 20 minutes? Man, that's not even an introduction. I think most of our westernized disciples would have probably left early, stayed home altogether, would have attempted to encourage themselves with Fox News, CNN, endless list of movies and shows that are available at the tap of a button. Worse yet, some would have just merely stayed home and found different preachers on YouTube to fit within their busy schedules and their preferred communication style. Now listen, I have a whole list of podcasts of preachers that I listen to. And, and just, so, just so that you guys understand, I don't do this all the time, I try though. My aim is to have the text master me before I master it. Meaning that I, I, I try hard to make sure I'm sitting under that word before I ever give it to somebody else. It needs to convict me of my sin first. Now, I admit that I am human, I am sinful, and I don't always get that one right. 
And I'm sure that even at times when I think I've got it right, there's still more the text could have convicted inside of me before I stepped into this space. And I just trust God that he can use weak and broken men to do what he does as he speaks through his word, right? In this case, though, as I worked my way through this, I thought, man, Joe, you know, like you go to conferences, you read books about preaching, you listen to other guys preaching. Hmm. So for years, my rhythm, every time I would go to sleep at night, and Christy could tell you this, I would turn on one preacher or the other. And she would ask me often, who are we listening to tonight? Now, it's funny because I would turn them on and sometimes we'd fall asleep while listening to the sermon. Um, that was my rhythm, part of my spiritual diet, you might say. And I, I am ashamed to tell you that uh, I think it's been, it's been years. It's been a couple years. We had, we had a kid go into the hospital, one of our kids. I don't remember what year that was, maybe 2020, 21 maybe, somewhere in there, probably 21. Um, so it's been a good two, three years. And I'm not saying I haven't listened to any preaching outside of Sundays, but not like I did. I uh, sat in a members meeting recently talking about taking a sabbatical one day. I made the comment in tears, that, and I wasn't expecting it, that I need to take a sabbatical just because I want to fall in love with Jesus again. It's not that I don't love Jesus, but it's that there are other things that compete with that love in, in my line of work, and I'm sure in your lives and lines of work too. And I just want to love Jesus alone, outside of all the pressures. And I was really convicted, in this sermon especially, that I need to get back to that every night, going to bed, opening up a sermon, plopping on. One commentator notes this. Um, he says, the focus of this story in this text, he says it lies entirely on the importance of preaching. He says, indeed, uh, it almost takes your breath away to see how Luke describes that after Eutychus had been raised to life again, they celebrate the supper, and then Paul spoke again until daybreak, right? And again, I've, I've alluded to this already, but that same commentator also says this. He says that there, there will not be, and this one rocked me, he says there will not be any great reformation in our churches or our personal lives if such thirst for the preaching of God's word is absent. If we are content to hear one sermon a week lasting 20 minutes or even 60, then we are displaying a condition of spiritual sickness. And unless we cultivate an appetite for the exposition of Scripture, we will never grow as Christians. And I was reminded that I believe it was Jesus who said, man cannot live on bread alone. It can only live on every word comes from the mouth of God. We need more preaching in our lives. Really. It's no wonder so many people, and especially professing Christians, seem to be walking around perpetually discouraged. If, in fact, the spiritual attitude towards preaching in general or I would even kick in there the attitude towards being in places throughout the week where the Word of God is being discussed, if that attitude is as dismal as it seems. Truth. 
it's really that bad, then it's no wonder that even professing Christians are still walking around perpetually discouraged and still completely empty. In conclusion, I think that we probably need to be a little bit more honest with ourselves, right? Um, It's no doubt that being in church every Sunday is taxing on our schedules, especially if you serve somewhere in ministry on a Sunday morning, right? I remember the first church that Christy and I got to help plant. We're volunteers. We got seven kids. Most of them, I think, at that point are probably under the age of 10. And uh, we had the trailer full of stuff to set up in the school. We weren't the lead pastors. We were just volunteers. And we got up and got seven kids ready every every Sunday and got that trailer hooked up to the truck and pulled it over to the location at 7 a.m. And we got pictures of our kids riding on carts that have rolls of carpet on it as we roll the stuff in. Now, I'm not sharing that story because, whoa, look at me and how great I am. I, I'm sharing that because, hey, here's, this is just the way I see the scriptures. Right? When I look at God's people in the scriptures, they're willing to die for the gospel. And I just went, oh, that's the way Christians are supposed to behave. Okay. Now, on that, I found it easy. There are other areas of my life where sin abounds and I, I struggle. So just hear me straight. This is just one of those areas where I go, you know, this just makes sense to me. Yes, it's taxing to get your butt out of bed on Sunday mornings and be in a church gathering. We have excuses and reasons that abound. Equally taxing is actually being in a rhythm of being in a community group and not or, but and. I don't, I don't know how in our church, and this is just for our church membership, we got to this place where we started saying, well, you either need to be in a community group or a men's and women's Bible study. And that was stupid of us to say that. It should be a community group where you're building friendships and relationships. And it should be a a men's and women's Bible study throughout the week, period. Now again, there are seasons and things that happen. You have a baby. You do get some legit sickness in your house. Yeah, you got to back off a little bit for sure. But I am reminded here as I think about this, Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says this, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So there were some folks who had made a habit of neglecting being with God's people. It says, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I want you to notice something. The confession of hope in this passage the reminder that God's promises are trustworthy, the challenge to stir one another up to love and good works, those are all centered on meeting together regularly. Yet, the Western church, I think, loves to take deadly naps while we skip out on our Sunday gatherings and our midweek Bible studies. It's a shame. I think we need to continue doing the work of self-evaluation, ask the Spirit of God to reveal any areas of disobedience, any, any areas of rebellion, laziness, complacency. Look, if you're not excited on a Sunday to be in church, you're not excited to be in a, a men's Bible study or a women's Bible study or a community group, can I just say you should probably check your vision of the cross? That's all I think. 
It's really simple to me, that one. I know that sounds arrogant. But there's nothing complex about this. I profess to follow Jesus, and that Jesus I profess to follow went to a cross to die with a smile on his face. And yet, oftentimes, we are like, man, I got to go to that. She seriously, and I, I, I struggle with this too. Got to go to men's Bible study night. I really want to catch up on that one show I was watching. It's probably glorifying all sorts of sinful stuff. This, that's my struggle too. To balance whatever sounded arrogant, what was going on here, okay? Need to do some good hard self-evaluation. I wouldn't want any of us to be caught taking a deadly nap when Jesus returns. There is a story about that. There's some people sleeping, came back. They got the invitation. The emails went out. Okay. So are the annoying text messages. Yo, you're going to be there. I'm going to throw a party. Stay to sleep. <laughs> and for truly honest with ourselves, I think that we do fall into deadly naps. Um, oftentimes because we get enamored with other false gods. Okay. And as we get enamored with other false gods, our love for Jesus grows cold. At the end of the day, anybody who does not have a huge appetite for hearing the gospel preached, uh, anybody who doesn't have a huge appetite for studying the Bible with other believers, has literally lost his or her appetite for Jesus. There's no other way to say it. That's all there is to it. I'm looking around the room, and I'm seriously looking at dudes I don't see in men's Bible study. I'll be honest. And I wonder, do you love Jesus? No problem saying it. And the reason is not because I want to beat people up, because I want to see you love Jesus. And it seems to me in the description of the church that part of loving Jesus means, and I'm going to go study the Bible with my brothers and my sisters. Think about this. The eternal word of God became flesh, dwelt among us. And what did he do? He preached. It was Jesus' ministry. He preached. He preached repentance. He preached forgiveness, grace, mercy. He did it. He did it through a bloody cross, an empty tomb, promise of eternity in heaven. See, not only did Jesus constantly preach all this with his words, but he did it with his life. And he did this so that he could see dead men and women raised to new life and set free from the shackles of their sin and rebellion. Listen, if you find yourself overcome with a general sense of discouragement, general sense that you've been sleepwalking through life, general sense that you've been taking a deadly nap, maybe you ought to wake up this morning. Maybe this is a prophetic wake-up call for you. Maybe it's time to wake up and fall in love with Jesus and to fall in love with hearing his word preached, studied, and uttered by other men and women of God. Beautiful. You're in those spaces. And don't discount the spiritual warfare that takes place. There's an enemy who does not want you in those places. And I don't want you overtaken by the enemy. Maybe you find yourself discouraged because death has been threatening you, taunting you. Maybe you have been rejected, betrayed by somebody you loved. Maybe you do have some dreams that are not fulfilled. Those kinds of things can cause a deadly nap that may not seem too dangerous to you. 
I hope that you'll hear this. Instead of leaning into increasing the preaching of God's word to your heart, maybe you have actually found some kind of distractions. Or maybe you've found some kind of a way to fill your schedule enough so that you don't have to think about those discouraging things. But hear me when I say this. Just because you found distractions and just because you found ways not to think about what discourages you does not mean that your soul is not still discouraged. Here's why I know that to be true. Your heart is probably even more discouraged if this is you because your heart and your soul are being ignored instead of dealt with. And ignoring things never fixes the issue. The only place that your discouragements and your rebellion, your laziness, your disobedience, your deadly naps are ever going to get dealt with once and for all is at the foot of a bloody cross, it's in the doorway of an empty tomb, and it's in light of the promise of heaven. And the reason I say something to this effect every week is because there is a Savior who made that cross bloody for you. There's a Savior who left that tomb empty so that you can experience victory. There is a Savior who gave that promise of heaven to you so that you might have the hope you need to lean into what you hear preached and to follow Him as you fill your life with more preaching and more study of the Word of God. So the only question left at the very end here is, will you continue taking a deadly nap? Or will you wake up to the beauty of the Gospel being preached? Will you get yourself into those spaces? You can study God's Word, hear the Gospel preached multiple times a week. Would you do that? Or will you ignore this and walk out the door and be no different than you were when you walked in? That's entirely up to you. Father, thank you for your word. Pray, Lord God, that you help us to wrestle with what you wanted to say to us this morning. I pray, Father, you would remove anything that I said that shouldn't have been said, but drill home what you wanted to say and help us to respond accordingly. God, we love you. Thank you for this picture of what it looks like to have preaching filling the center, the bookends, things like the threat of death and unfulfilled dreams. Help us to be encouraged and to seek encouragement where it can be found. Put up a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb and lie to the hope of heaven. Trust that you do that for all of us. In Jesus' name. And everybody said...